week we'll talk about uh, quite a few things. So building a machine learning platform, career, and being generally specialist. I think quite a wide range of topics. So we have a special guest today, uh, Krzysztof. Chris. So Krzysztof is a seasoned engineer with 17 years of professional experience in building software. Currently, he works at Zolanda, where he's supporting machine learning practitioners as a machine learning platform engineer. Actually, if you uh, maybe you know, Chris has given a talk about that a few months ago, where he presented uh, the machine learning platform they built at Zolanda. So we will include the link in the notes. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's in our uh, channel too. And right now, Chris is on a sabbatical where he is learning and broadening his machine learning skills. Right. So, welcome. Pleasure to have you here again. Hello, everyone. Hi, Alex. So, questions for today's interview are prepared by Johanna Bayer. So, thanks, Johanna, for your help. And uh, let's start. So, we'll start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Yes. So, it started quite a while ago. So, in 2000, I built my first website. And since then, in 2005, I started to work uh, as a software engineer. Uh, I work in pharma for a company called Roche. This was my first job as a software engineer specializing in front-end. And then I work for a company that some of you have fond memories of, for Nokia. I was working there on geolocation services, uh, also working mostly with front-end and uh, map applications and navigation. And then I decided to switch my career to something completely different and got into game development. I was working for a company called Uga. It's a Berlin-based startup, wonderful place uh, where I spent five years uh, working on mobile games, for example, for iOS. Also, I built a game for this device, for Apple Watch. It still runs on my device. You can actually play games on Apple Watch. Yes, that was uh, one of the things we wanted to try out, and uh, it's definitely possible. So the game uh -huh. is even now running. Do people actually play it? Like, I guess it's not really convenient, is it? Or This was part of the experiment to find out, is it a good platform for games? It is possible, but there are only certain kinds of games you can build for it that make sense. So for example, uh, it's so-called idle games, where you do something and then you wait, and in a while your watch will remind you to play again. Uh-huh. So it was more like a proof of concept. So like you cannot really play Tetris or Bubble Witch or anything like that? I think Tetris would be possible if it's a simplified version, but uh, maybe not the most convenient. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. And then after Uga, I decided to switch careers again and join Zalando. Zalando is a company where it's quite easy to switch between different roles and the company is encouraging that. So I started as a full stack engineer working most with Python. And then I moved towards data. In the first team in that area, I was working on data governance topics for one year. And then three years ago, I reached my current destination, which is machine learning. I joined machine learning platform team where I was working as a software engineer and now as an internal consultant. So you started your career, I guess, with HTML and a bit of JavaScript, right? So That's right. you built your first website, I guess, maybe some PHP, right? Or PHP and the very first language I started with was Perl, if you remember that. I know it existed, uh, exists, still exists, and every time I copy a snippet from the internet with some Perl code, my brain just explodes. I don't know how people in their mind, in the right mind, can write this. I hopefully do not offend any Perl lovers. I know they exist, but yeah, no, not for me, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
actually really like Perl, but uh, it has reputation of, uh, some people call it write-only language, because you can write it, but then it's not very easy to read. You leave only one language, right? Yes. <laughs> so then it was Perl, right? And then you joined Nokia. What kind of stack did you use at Nokia? I guess like Java, right? Or something like that? So at Nokia, I was working on front-end applications that were running uh, in a browser, both on mobile and um, in the desktop, and we were using JavaScript. JavaScript, right. So you weren't writing any mobile code, right? Only front-end? So at the time at Nokia, yes, it was uh, mm -hmm. only JavaScript. And mm -hmm. actually, this was also the reason I was hired for this gaming company, Uga, because we also tried to do mobile development using JavaScript. And the first project was in JavaScript, and only later we decided it's better to use something native or Unity. Mm. So you were talking about Wooga, right? So as a, as a game developer, you used That's correct. Unity there. So I didn't use Unity myself. So when I was there, it was a very exciting time because Wooga was trying different uh, technology. So we started with uh, HTML5, which was a big thing at the time, around 2012. Um, we built and ship again, but we decided it's not really the most convenient and performant tool for mobile development. So we switched to native and I was mostly working there with Objective-C and Swift. And then the company moved to Unity, but uh, around that time I also left uh, and moved to Zalanda. And then at Zalanda as a full stack engineer, you said he used Python. Mostly Python, yes. So this, uh, from what I hear, these are completely different stacks. So how did you change your career so many times? Like, how did you convince the employers to actually, you know, give you a chance? Yes. So this is an interesting question because sometimes when companies are hiring people, they look for experts and specialists in one area. But in practice, pretty much in every place I work with, uh, I worked at, it turned out that in the end, the company is changing direction and they actually want people to learn new things. And uh, in every place I was fortunate that uh, the company allowed me to try something new and learn. So let's say at Wuga, the company decided to change direction, but they were happy with me as a general purpose software engineer. And I was also very eager to get deeper into Apple stack. And uh, I had a few weeks to just get into new code base. And then you just grow expertise as you keep building software. So as I understood, you joined Wuga as a JavaScript developer or front-end developer, but That's then right. uh, there was a chance to work on uh, mobile stuff and then you took it, right? Yes. So I was already hired with the intention to work on mobile development with JavaScript. That was the project. The project uh -huh. was already going on. But then we decided uh, we actually don't want to continue working with JavaScript. We want to use native tech because mm -hmm. it's just performing better. Okay. And you were using Objective-C and uh, I don't know, what else uh, mobile swift yeah and then somehow you ended up as a full stack engineer using python how did that happen exactly so web was always very close to me and uh, even though i was mostly specializing in front end uh, even for my own private projects i already did uh, some backend so for example i did php perl which i mentioned and also ruby on rails so i had general idea uh, which uh, was good enough to get me through the interviews. So in the interviews at Zalanda, I had to use JavaScript. But then the project required uh, also Python knowledge. So then at Zalanda, I remember I forced myself to have very quick 
learning experience with Python. I read some books about this, started to code it also in my spare time, and uh, very quickly I was able to contribute. And also what's worth adding is that a lot of experience as a generalist can transfer from one tech stack to another. And this was a very common theme in my career that, uh, for example, things such as SQL, it's one of the technologies that I use pretty much in every company, even though it was not always my expertise. Or learning Git was something that uh, I just keep using over and over in every role. Yeah, so when you mentioned Zalanda, I remembered uh, my interview with Zalanda. So actually, I was interviewing for a data scientist position, and then I was asked algorithmic challenges, and then I could use whatever language I wanted. So yes. then for me, was uh, my background is in Java development before data science. So for me, it was the easiest to use Java, and they were like, okay, whatever, use what, what you want. Right? Yes. And uh, so they didn't really test me for knowledge in a specific language. They just wanted to see how I can solve problems. And I guess uh, this is what also happened to, to you, right? So they, during the interview, they just asked, they just checked that you know some things, and then maybe they didn't care much whether, like, you know, Python very well or not. That's right. So specifically at Zalando, we have something uh, called Tech Radar, uh, which is an idea that I think was initially invented by ThoughtWorks. It's a consulting company, and it's uh, a map of different uh, languages, libraries, and tech tools that we are using in the company. And I don't know when it, in what year did you apply to Zalando? Because what do you remember? When was it? Yeah. I don't know, seven, six years ago, but I had like multiple interviews with them across years. So we changed it a bit since then. When I was applying, that was six years ago, Zalando gave much more freedom to teams to choose pretty much any language the team wanted. Since then, we realized it leads to a bit of chaos. When, for mm -hmm. example, you have a team that is using Haskell and then another team is using Rust and it doesn't scale very well, and so it gives you that freedom. So since then, we focus on preparing this tech radar, which has a list of languages that are encouraged in the company. And uh, right now, the list is more limited. So Java is definitely still there, Python, JavaScript, TypeScript. For mobile development, I think Swift uh, is there. I'm not sure because I'm not doing that anymore. But the list is definitely more limited than before. So you still have freedom, and most likely you will try and work with different languages, but uh, the list is not unlimited as it was before. So if you're a Haskell enthusiast, then maybe it's not the right place for you, right? I'm pretty sure we still have some legacy Haskell code, but um, it's not encouraged anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> Uh, I got to know one person at Zalanda. Actually, he was even interviewing me, who is a huge Haskell fan. But uh, it's difficult to hire people who know Haskell. It's one of the reasons. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so you joined Zalanda as a full stack engineer. Then you worked in data governance, and then you eventually switched to ML platform, right? As a software engineer. Yes. So can you tell us more about what you do in this ML platform team? Or you did, right? So because now you said you're an internal consultant. Maybe you can just tell us about your journey from that part in more details. So it's still the same team, ML platform team. But uh, within that team, we have three smaller sub-teams or groups. So I was uh, first working as a software engineer. And um, the primary product of my team was uh, something called ZFlow. It's a Python library that we are using as a 
based building block for machine learning pipelines. And I spent two years doing that. And um, last year I switched roles a bit. So I still stayed within the ML platform team, but now as a consultant, I teach people how to use ZFlow. So for example, I conduct trainings. I also do a lot of user support and consulting in a way of understanding user problems and then helping them to architecture their pipelines and solve any issues they may have either with our products or with uh, AWS tooling, which uh, is another building block for us. So how did you end up being a consultant? Is it something, so you saw that, uh, I don't know, data scientists do not know how to use ZFlow, ZFlow, and then you saw the need to teach them or how it happened? So we had consulting teams uh, or consulting team from early on. And the reason for that is that uh, very often with internal products, you build something, but it's not very well supported. And we wanted to avoid this mistake. And uh, that's why from the very beginning, we put a lot of effort into things such as documentation, which is another thing that uh, consulting team helps with, and training and onboarding and then user support. So we didn't want to just launch it and hope that people will use it and like it. We want these users to be happy with the product. And that's why we have the consulting team. And um, I must say that I like this a lot. Uh, I like solving problems. And uh, I must say, as an engineer working on ZFlow, I understood some parts of it very deeply, but I didn't have a big picture. I didn't know how people are using ZFlow, what are the challenges they have. So definitely it also expanded my horizon and let me learn new things. Some people say that the best way to learn something new is to teach it. So that was definitely the case with me. I also like saying that. <laughs> so that's true, I think. So what does your day look like uh, as a consultant? What do you do usually? Yes. So most of it is user support and uh, it's a kind of responsive role. So uh, we have uh, several chats where we answer questions and sometimes the questions are quite easy to answer, but usually not. So if someone comes to us, it means that probably they already checked our documentation and they have more advanced problem, which requires going a bit deeper. and because we work mostly remotely, usually I just have a call with uh, the member of the team who has this problem and we debug it together. That's one thing. Very often if I see that it's a problem that uh, happens over and over again, or maybe resulted from a lack of clarity in our documentation, I would just fix the documentation. Sometimes and there is a bug discovered in the process. So if it's something small, I would... Even as a consultant, I will try to fix it, but usually I will just talk to the development team and uh, they will fix it. And then we have trainings. So some trainings are already happening and there is quite a lot of work involved with that because it's not only a passive presentation, but uh, we try to do it in a very interactive way. So people have to do their homework and they have to prepare. And then during the training, and they do a lot of exercises. And I also try to follow up with them later if they struggle with the homework, for example, if they don't understand something. So that's the typical set of tasks I have to do. I guess you need to prepare all the materials for the trainings too. Yes. And how much hands-on is what you do? Like, I mean, how often do you actually need to, you know, go and code? Not so much, Not so much, I must say. So I think this is a bit of a disadvantage that uh, I don't go, uh, especially when it comes to more complex problems, I don't solve them anymore as a consultant compared 
to my previous role as a software engineer. So I still submit pull requests, but usually there are documentation fixes. And I also don't want to step over competences of my colleagues in the platform team who are actually building this. So it's not so much on, uh, hands-on coding. Yeah, and now you're on a sabbatical. Right? Yes. So can you tell us more? What do you do on your sabbatical? So this is a three-month sabbatical, January, February, March. I have to say that when I took it, my intention was to stay away from technology as much as possible because uh, I've been working at Zalando for five and a half years and as a software engineer, much longer than that. And I thought I need a break. The thing is, most of my planned activities were non-technical, like let's say focus on my hobbies. But especially last year and current period is so exciting, in my opinion, in technology, especially in our field in machine learning, that uh, I have to say that I still touch and try and play with some things. So especially last year, three most exciting things for me were diffusion models. So I'm not a data scientist. This is not my background. So I don't claim to understand the papers, even though I looked into them and I even gave internal presentation in the team about uh, how they work, but I only have high level understanding of that. But especially as a front, former front-end engineer and someone interested in graphics, I find it extremely exciting. And then towards the end of the year, there was a release of ChatGPT, which is also extremely exciting. And even as a user, as a software engineer, or as someone who works in tech, I think this has a huge potential to change our jobs. We can also talk about that. So I definitely look into that. And then there is something that is um, also partially related to uh, what we do in machine learning space, and that is running code in the cloud. And I was not paid to that, but there is a small startup that I'm very excited uh, to mention. It's called Modal Labs. Uh, it's uh, something founded by Eric Bernardson. So he's a person who worked on initial Spotify recommendation algorithm. He's also the original author of Luigi. And Modal Labs is his latest project. Uh, you can think about this as a very easy way to run your local code in the cloud without worrying about infrastructure, about provisioning hardware. Idea is that you write your Python script, you execute one command to run it, and then it runs in the cloud. So it's a bit like AWS Lambda, but much easier to use. And they also made it very performant. So this is something that I started to play this week and hope to dive a bit deeper uh, during my sabbatical when I'm not doing non-technical <laughs> So do you still have time for non-technical plans or that takes most of your time? I have to say I'm struggling. Okay. I'm struggling with that because Three months sounds like a lot, but uh, with my to-do list, it's really hard to fit everything in. So it's a bit difficult. Yeah, well, I took two months and it just I didn't notice how these two months passed. It was just, you know, I blinked my eyes and yeah, it's over. Yes. <laughs> Go back to work. So I drew the line that I don't want to touch things that I do in my daily job at Zalando. So if at some point I will find myself editing IM policies, then it means that I crossed the line and uh, it's too deep into what I do at my daily job. So you wanted to, you said that you're quite excited about ChatGPT as a developer and you wanted to talk more about that. So when I saw ChatGPT, I was blown away. Like it was like, wow, so cool. And now I use it for 
a lot of stuff, mostly around content generation. So like for posts on social media, for, I don't know, podcast summaries, uh, for like a lot of stuff in the Data Talks Club. I also talk to it sometimes, like, I don't know, for example, I read a book recently and I wanted to talk about the book with somebody. <laughs> so I talked to the chatbot, right? It was pretty fun. So I tend to use it very often. And recently it was actually down for a day and it was like, okay, what do I do now? So I wonder, like, how do you see, how do you use it? How do you include it in your workflow? What does excite you about that? So I'm still on a stage where I discover what it can do. And mm -hmm. it's hard to find something that it cannot do. So it can work like the way I imagine this now, or my metaphor for this is, if you know data from Star Trek Next Generation, or um, Jane, this assistant that the main character from Ender's Game had in his ear. So the super smart artificial intelligence that you can talk about anything with it, and it will give you pretty good advice. So I think we are just still just discovering what it can do. So for example, it can do coding pretty well. So if you are stuck with a blank empty screen, it's excellent to just describe what you want and it will give you a decent answer. What was very surprising to me is that uh, it can also work as a sparring partner for architectural discussions. So me and also some of my colleagues from the team, we gave it pretty advanced questions, for example, about Amazon SageMaker and IAM policies, and it gave very good answers. So here there is a bit of a danger because on one hand, these are very good answers that sometimes are difficult to Google because maybe nobody has asked this very question exactly on Stack Overflow. But it still required that uh, you bring some knowledge and experience to validate this answer because uh, sometimes it speaks with confidence, but it's actually wrong. So we've been, me and my colleagues in the team were generally impressed by this, but we still know that you cannot trust it 100%. On the other hand, you can also say that if you talk to a fellow human, even if it's an experienced software engineer, they also make mistakes. They can also be overly confident, right? And definitely they can be overly confident. In fact, sometimes even more than ChatGPT. For example, one of the questions I asked uh, was also answered on Stack Overflow, and it was pretty highly voted reply, but um, I don't think it was a very good answer. And the answer I got from ChatGPT was more humble, balanced, and uh, rich in scope. So that's one of the things I use it. But like you, I also tested this with just general content creation. So things that are not technical. You can use it as a friendly poet. It can write songs, not only in English, but also, for example, in Polish or Russian. It can be a therapist. And you can also talk about books. So, for example, it can give you a summary of pretty much any book that was written in the last decades, especially the classics, but also relatively newer books. Interesting. Actually, I asked it to give a summary of a book and it said, no, I don't want to do this. Like, <laughs> like it just said, like, I'm not good at doing summaries, but I can talk yeah. about the topic of this book. I was okay, like, let's talk about that. So it could depend on the book. Uh, I tested this only on one book. Mm. And um, I can maybe... Maybe it depends on how popular the book is, right? Yeah, so the book I tested specifically was The Intelligent Investor. It's a book about stock market investing, and it's pretty old. 
So it's uh, from, I believe, 1949. So it's been mm -hmm. around for a while. So maybe ChatGPT was more confident mm -hmm. in talking about this book. Yeah. So how do you actually use it for during your sabbatical? Because uh, I guess this, uh, these are the examples, right? So you talk to it, discuss books and so on, right? Yes. So I still didn't fully, I have to say, I didn't fully incorporate this in my daily life. I think it will be more and more of that. Right now, I think the UX is, uh, especially for specific tasks, it's not perfect. So for example, if you want to write code, Google, not Google, GitHub Pilot has slightly better UX because it's just integrated with your ID. It's a bit more cumbersome to use ChatGPT, but I would say I'm still in the phase of discovery. For example, if we can add it to show notes, but uh, there is one person I highly recommend to follow on Twitter. His name is Riley Goodside, and he's possibly the first person in the world who was hired as a prompt engineer. So the person whose main job is to write these prompts to talk to AI, and he's sharing a lot of his findings on Twitter, and uh, he's demonstrating, for example, how to trick these large language models into something absurd. But uh, he also demonstrates what are the possibilities. And I think we're still in the phase where we are just learning what it can do. And I think we'll discover much more this year. So now everyone gets on uh, on the hook from OpenAI. And then once they make it pay, then yeah, we're screwed. Personally, I look forward to the moment and they will start charging for that because uh, currently it's down pretty often. So I will pay too. To <laughs> I would say, no, okay. assuming that the price is reasonable, but uh, I think uh, it would be better for user experience. Maybe they will also have some free version for, let's say, students or open source. Yeah, they recently sent, or at least I don't know if it's them or somebody else, I saw a form where they were asking, like, how much are you willing to pay? How much is expensive for you? How much is cheap? And I thought, like, mm, no, I'm not telling you that. Yes. <laughs> because otherwise, too, too expensive, maybe. <laughs> I thought about the same, that uh, I think I would be willing to pay quite a lot, but let's see how much they will decide to charge. Okay, so going back to your background, you have a quite a diverse background. You tried many, many things. Do you think it helped you with your career for generating new ideas, for seeing new solutions? And how did it help you? I think generally, yes. So like everything in life, this has pros and cons. So the pro is that it allowed me to transfer different skills from my past jobs uh, into new ones. And I think sometimes it's just easier to start a new role where I can just borrow from my past experience. So I like to think about technologies that are good investment over long term that I can transfer across different jobs. So I mentioned a couple of them. So for example, SQL is one of them. Another one is uh, Git. So basically, these are things that um, follow the rule of the longer something has been around, the more likely it is to stay for a long time. I think there is a name for that. It's called Lindy Effect. It's named after a restaurant from New York that existed for some time. It was called Lindy's. And just the fact that it existed for a long time means that it's more likely to stay around. So I try to look at the things that existed for a while, and it gives me more confidence that they will just keep working. JavaScript is another example. So now JavaScript is uh, around almost 30 years old. And this was definitely one of the good investments. 
Another thing that I'm actually learning or improving right now in my spare time is um, getting better at shell scripting and just using command line tools from a terminal. And this is something that in every job that I work, the more I know about this, the more it pays. So I'm trying to invest into things that I can transfer. So this definitely helped from being a generalist. I think also some general principles, like for example, when I join new projects, I try to first understand what's the user value, uh, how does it help the company to build something. So trying to have a product and user-centered view on the thing that we are building, instead of only focusing on technology. And I think this generalist approach is helping here. So these are pros. When it comes to negative sides of being a journalist, I have to say that uh, despite spending many years as a software engineer, I just constantly suffer from imposter syndrome. Do you think if you would be a specialist, do you think you will not suffer? I don't know. <laughs> Probably people who are experts in something like they're deep experts, they also have it because they also have major gaps in other areas. You always compare yourself with somebody who knows it better than you, right? Probably, yes. And it's not a good idea to do that. This week I talked with two friends of mine. We used to work together on more than one project. And one of them has been software engineer for longer than I have. And he says that, yeah, he still suffers from imposter syndrome. So I think that's just something that we have to embrace as part of our job, that regardless how fast you're learning, technology is moving faster. So the gap between what I know as a software engineer or as a data engineer versus what is there, it's only going to grow, unfortunately. But uh, one very practical consequence of that is that experts or specialists, they are able to build things faster. So if you have a good match between a product that you need to build and then the expertise, then this person is definitely going to do it faster than someone who, like me, is a generalist. Interesting. Like, in my experience, it's the opposite. Right? Because like for project, you need usually a wide variety of skills. So it's not just one person typically who you need. Like if it's an end-to-end -end project, which needs, I don't know, front-end, back-end, databases, uh, I don't know, all this stuff. Typically, like if you're a specialist and you know on the back-end for you, it's probably more difficult to do other things. Depends on how niche the project is, right? Exactly. So it depends on the scope. So. Uh, that's why I mentioned that if you have a good match between what is required for a project versus the skills that uh, the team or the person brings to the project, because the wider the scope, of course, the expert will struggle more when it's getting outside their area of expertise. But if you have uh, something that is relatively narrow in scope, then definitely expertise will help. Like uh, I can give you an example. Last year, over a year ago, uh, we had uh, our internal API just going slower and slower. It was naturally scaling well. And some requests were taking more than 10 seconds to return. And I'm not a database expert. I know my way around it, but I'm not an expert. But uh, I was tasked with looking into that and improving that. And um, I think I spent a couple of weeks on that. And in the end, uh, we got 10 times speed up in performance by optimizing uh, our ORM layer for Postgres. But I'm pretty sure that a person who is very fluent in Postgres, they would probably do it in one day. 
Okay. But uh, with your background, with your experience, you knew where to look for the answers, right? And then it just yes. took you a bit more time to discover, to find these answers. But then at the end, you still did it, right? Yes. Uh, well, I'm also quite sure that uh, some Postgres expert would find even more than I did. Yeah, of course. So there's always a balance. But uh, unfortunately, on the team, we didn't have someone who was a Postgres expert. Okay, two cons so far. Imposter syndrome and experts can build things faster. Anything else? I was also thinking, how does it affect recruiting and finding new jobs? Because very often I saw that companies, they look for experts. And sometimes it could be a bit scary, like you see a job ad and you see like, we want five years of experience with large language models and you have to be an expert in this and that. And sometimes it's just impossible to meet all of that. But there is this common advice that very often you should apply for jobs, even if you don't meet every criteria. And I think it's a good advice because in every role, in every company where I was hired, I had to demonstrate some expertise, but in the end, I was doing almost entirely different things. So for example, I was hired at Zalando after JavaScript interview, and then I actually learned Python on the job at Zalando. And uh, I didn't have any expertise or any experience with data governance or machine learning. And this is what I do right now. So it helps to have some expertise to get your foot into the door, but then you should be ready to learn. So I think many people who are listening to us now have heard about this T-shaped developer or T-shaped person. And for those who haven't, it means that like uppercase letter T, you have this one stem that goes deep. So it's good to have one area of expertise where you're really good at an expert, but uh, there's also this horizontal bar on letter T. So these are other skills that you should learn and be able to jump and go deeper into them. So what's for you this stem, you know, the vertical part? What is this for you? Yes. So the one that is closest to my heart, I think it's uh, web front end and everything related to HTTP and uh, understanding how things work in a browser. I also try to expand it. So by now it's maybe not letter T because I have few of these stems. So like maybe E upside down, right? Capital E. Not sure which letter it would be, maybe M. M. Okay. Uh, but, uh, for example, I got pretty good at uh, using Git, and very often I'm helping my colleagues to resolve problems with history, with rebasing, things like that. I really also just like shell scripting and uh, learning about different Unix tools, and there's like infinite number of them. And the more you learn, the more productive you become. And then there are some things that are maybe less specific to one particular technology, but ability to debug things. And for example, divide and conquer method for just narrowing down where the problem is. So some things I'm used by my colleagues as a rubber duck for rubber duck debugging. Uh, for those who haven't heard this term, sometimes it's very helpful to just explain the problem you have to someone or something. It could be even a rubber duck that you have on your desk explain the problem and after you explain it to someone the solution just comes to your mind so very often i'm a buddy or a rubber duck for my colleagues and help them debug problems and a lot of engineers prefer to build new things instead of debugging and uh, finding bugs i'm actually one of the people who really like debugging and um, it's something that i also learned 
that's a rare quality. Usually people don't like debugging. I don't really enjoy it, to be honest. I think most people don't like it. I yeah. treat it as a puzzle to solve myself. Okay, like you're a detective and uh, you're, you know, looking for, I don't know, like, <laughs> for a solution to crime, right? For the crime. For the crime, yes. yeah. Okay, yeah, that's pretty interesting. So one thing I wanted to ask you is what advice would you give to people who want to do something like you do, change directions often? So from what I understood from you, so you say that it's a, it's a good idea to invest into fundamental skills, skills that are transferable, like SQL, Git, uh, shell script in terminal, JavaScript, then also ability to debug things, divide and conquer, as you said. And then another thing you mentioned was product and user orientation, like thinking how does the thing I'm working on contribute to the goals of the company to user value, right? So I think these two things you mentioned that like this is something you can invest into and then it will help you in uh, when you switch career. Anything else that you think is helpful? So I try to avoid giving general advice because mm -hmm. what I learned is uh, different people have different career paths. And um, before this interview, I listened to a number of other interviews from Data Talks uh, Club. And I noticed one thing that people arrive in, especially machine learning, from very different directions because it's a very new industry and we have different experiences. But maybe there's one general advice I would give. So especially when you are trying to build this T-shape and get one stem where you go deeper, try to find something that you are generally passionate about as an individual. So this will give you a great advantage if you find at least one area where you are just generally interested in. Because I found out that people who just enjoy the process of learning something, going deeper in that one area, they will always be ahead of people who are just focused on results. So if you just want to, I know, get a job or finish a project and you hate the way to get there, you'll be in the long term at disadvantage compared to a person who just enjoys, let's say, the process of writing um, IAM policies. I remember I listened to one interview uh, when um, the person you talked to said that he's relaxing by writing these policies. So I'm pretty sure he'll be way better at doing that than someone who doesn't like it. So if you, as a junior, find one thing that is really exciting to you, um, try to go really deep into that, develop an expertise and other things that you're less excited about, just do them as and learn them as you need them for your project. It was an interview with Tomas. Yes. It was about his uh, transitioning from data science to data ops. That's a very cool interview. And uh, yes, not many people enjoy IAM roles. And then debugging them is a nightmare. Like, I don't know how people enjoy that. Luckily, we have people who do enjoy this, so they can help with this stuff. But yeah, it's, I guess, the main root cause of many problems when it comes to cloud and AWS is like this improperly configured time roles. Yes, it's very common. So uh, I think this is uh, Tomar's superpower that he generally enjoys that. Would you suggest uh, buying a rubber duck? That's a good question. So I don't have one. I also use my colleagues for that purpose. So uh, this is also a general good advice that if you get stuck with something, uh, just talk to a teammate and it usually helps. So especially now when we work remotely, 
I think I would actively recommend against it and I would rather say talk to someone. Um, okay. Right now, now that you mentioned this, I realized that ChatGPT could serve also as a rubber duck. So for example, now I started the mentoring sessions with a person who's just learning programming. And on the very first meeting, I recommended her ChatGPT and use it as this assistant when she just wants to have a question. And we still have sessions between my mentee and myself, but in between she's using ChatGPT and she's very impressed how well it can work as this secondary mentor. So maybe this is a better upgraded rubber duck. One of my ex-colleagues, he just bought a pack of rubber ducks and put to everyone's desk. And then we still have quite a few of them around the office. Nice. Yeah, I don't use them. Like, even though uh, there is a duck near me, I don't really talk to it because I think it would be weird. I don't know. I just don't feel like talking to a duck. Especially in the office, I think it can <laughs> in the some office. Cycles. <laughs> yeah. So one thing you mentioned is uh, if you enjoy the process of learning, you'll probably be more successful because you will enjoy like also doing this thing. And I wonder like, what can I do to enjoy the process of learning? Like other tools, tips, tricks that can help me there? Yes, so that's a very good question that I also thought about myself because sometimes it just feels like magic, like you either have it or you don't. And mm -hmm. it's difficult to force yourself into liking something. So I think in the beginning, especially it helps to just let your curiosity drive you. So if you see something that is just interesting to you, uh, try to go deeper. And I think now it's quite a lot of things that are out there that could be interesting. So for example, for me, such a thing was um, image generation with these uh, diffusion models. So in the end, I had to stop because I'm not going to become a data scientist and I'm not going to get a PhD in that area. But I got relatively deep uh, given what I'm supposed to do just because I was really excited about the results and how it works. So let your curiosity drive in the beginning. That's one advice. Another one I noticed that sometimes just if you force yourself for let's say even half an hour or one hour to look into something, basically just start. And then very often you discover that, oh, actually it is interesting and I would like to learn more about it. And so just starting is a good advice. Some practical tip for that that works for me is Pomodoro technique. So if you just know that, okay, I will have to work for 25 minutes, then I will have a break. So it's not so painful. And then after 25 minutes, you discover this is really fun and uh, you just keep going on. And maybe the last thing that uh, I noticed worked for me, I like to listen to podcasts and interviews with inspiring people. So for example, when I listened to a few episodes of Data Talks Club, and uh, I just chose them based on the titles of what interests me, I felt that afterwards, like, yes, I really want to go deeper into this because uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm from people that you had on your podcast. I'm not sure if I can recommend another podcast uh, on this one. Your competition. <laughs> uh, I'm a huge fan of Lex Friedman podcast. Okay. He started as AI engineer at MIT and his podcast was mostly about AI. So now he's someone who ventured into very different areas and he talks to people who are not necessarily working technology, but especially I recommend going back to his earlier episodes if you are interested in machine learning because he interviewed 
very famous and accomplished people in the field and uh, just listening to them can broaden your horizons and uh, can inspire you. But I would say that inspiration is just part of it, but in the end, you have to just sit down and do something yourself because you can have all the inspiration, all the podcasts, but what matters in the end is that you face some of the pain yourself and try to do something yourself. So when you say just start and okay, I have my Pomodoro, I put it, so the clock is ticking and what do I do next? Like for me, sometimes it's like I'm staring at a blank screen and ah, what do I do now? Okay, so a while ago, I think it was harder, but uh, for the last two months, you can just add ChatGPT. Yeah, I knew you would say that. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good starting point. <laughs> I mean, I literally do that too now. So for example, recently I was working on a proposal for PyData conference that will happen in Berlin soon. And you know what I did at the end? I just talked to the chat GPT and yeah, that helped. I mean, people are probably tired of hearing chat GPT by now. I mean, in general, there is so much buzz on social. And there is also another answer to that without chat GPT. So if you get stuck, I think it's a general skill that's very important for software engineers, for people working in tech, it's to break down the bigger problem into smaller ones. So if you have to build, let's say, data pipeline classifier, just try to break it down into smaller things to the point where you get, until you get to the point where you know how to implement it. If you don't, just keep breaking it down. But then if it's a new area? So people have different learning styles. So for example, now, um, there is a lot of really cool tutorials on YouTube, if that's your style. Uh, some people prefer reading. Reading, I think, is a bit uh, faster and more efficient, but maybe more involved. Just trying to get anything on the screen, and even one line of Python in a notebook or in a script, and then usually you will know needs to be done next. Yeah, Starting is always the hardest part. Yeah, right. And uh, when we were talking about the cons of being a generalist, you mentioned one thing, that recruiting might be a problem. And I was thinking, why is that? So from what I see sometimes, when somebody leaves uh, leaves a company, a hiring manager, like the manager of that person, wants to hire the exact same person with the exact same skills. So what they do is they come up with a job description they just, okay, what this person was doing, let's just put all that there. Like, okay, that person had, I don't know, five years of Spark experience, let's just put the same thing. And then at the end, we see a job description that looks like exactly what this person was doing. And then, of course, it's at the end, it's not possible to hire the same, like a, a clone of that person, right? And then at the end, like hiring managers uh, compromise, right? And then, okay, like they don't know Spark, whatever, it's easy to learn it anyways, right? Or not easy, but like we will help them learn this. Do you think that's the only reason why we have these positions, uh, these job descriptions that look like, uh, I don't know, super experts, but there are other reasons? So I have to say that at Zanda, I'm quite fortunate because people who are writing these job descriptions are usually aware of this problem. And uh, at Zalando, we change quite often and it's expected that people will learn different things. So we try to avoid being too narrow. And most of the job descriptions I have seen are sufficiently flexible. Where it's coming from, I hope it will disappear because uh, technology is changing so fast that you just shouldn't focus on something that is too narrow. 
if you want something super narrow, maybe you don't need a full-time employee, just a consultant to solve one specific problem. But if you're investing in a person for longer periods of time, it's more important that it's someone who is flexible, who can put something together and build it rather than having just one specific narrow set of skills. Then it doesn't look like a big disadvantage because there are companies who realize this and try to put rather broad job descriptions, right? Like Zolando. Yes. And if I'm generalist and I want to apply to a job position that looks like an expert job description, I just apply, right? And then let them decide. Yes. So just try in the interview. Of course, it depends because people have sometimes it is understandable that a company wants an expert. So if you work on maybe not using some existing model, but you want to build a new machine learning model, maybe a PhD in the relevant area is actually someone who wants. But then, of course, the cost is it could be harder to hire the right person. And I'm thinking about an example from Oilix. So when we were looking for a person to join our recommender team, and we were like building a new team from scratch for that, Mm, we thought like, okay, like if we want to hire somebody senior for that team, like that person should have experience with recommender systems, right? Maybe others are not a must, but like this one is a must. So then like you kind of need, I guess, this T-shaped profile, right? Where the T, the STEM is recommender's experience. So yeah, probably depending on the needs of the team, like sometimes you just need a particular set of skills and they are a must. Yes. Well. I think it's getting a bit easier in the area of ML because even just three years ago, it was uh, so such a new field that it was harder to find expert. But now, let's say if you want someone with uh, recommender system experience, it will be easier to find it to find such a person than just three years ago. So, in general, do you think companies are looking more for generalists or for experts? Because from what I hear from you, like, okay, Zalanda is uh, broad in the job descriptions. And from what I see at what we do at Ulix, we also don't usually hire, like, super niche, for a super niche set of skills. Like, what do you think in general? It really depends. So if sometimes the companies, they have very specific objective to achieve and they need experts. And Zalando is also sometimes in need of specific expertise. Maybe it's also my personal survival bias that uh, I tend to gravitate towards roles where um, they require broader set of skills because that's what I can bring to the table. I wouldn't worry about this if I was uh, on a job market. Just try to develop something that you like and then develop this horizontal bar in the uh, letter T to look slightly around your core area of expertise. And we are still... In general, as a tech industry in the lucky situation where there is still a lot of need for people, especially in the field of data and machine learning. So focus on something that is interesting to you. Okay. Yeah, which today I guess is uh, sounds easy, but sometimes there are so many things. Right. What is interesting for me if everything is interesting? And this is something I struggle with. So you also have to learn, like, this is the opposite problem of what we were talking about. Like, you also have to say no to a lot of things. Yeah, like coming back to our discussion about your sabbatical plans, right? Yes, I definitely have too many interests for the limited time I have. How do you deal with this? Do you have any suggestions? Like, what does work for you? What I do is I'm a huge fan of to-do lists. 
and mm -hmm. uh, then if you just write down everything that is on your mind so just try to capture it and then you can prioritize and then you can also just drop some things on the list like to me sometimes to do lists feel like procrastination so i'm not really doing anything i'm just you know doing a to-do list instead of doing the thing do you have this feeling or it could happen but uh, i think it's even worse when you don't write it down and uh -huh. it's just this general mess in your head uh, when there is like 100 different things and you don't know where to start and when it's written down at least you know okay i can do this and the other things will go down in priority i'm not sure if it's related but what i noticed that helps for me is having some sort of deadlines and then making um like doing some sort of project work instead of like i don't know let's figure out how stable diffusion works like let's figure out how i can use it for solving a specific problem i don't know like maybe for stable diffusion it's a bad example but usually like there is a new piece of technology i want to try i give myself uh, i don't know a couple of days and then it kind of helps to you know stay focused on this specific thing i think deadlines definitely help there is this saying that if you have a software engineering task it will stretch to the time you allocate it so yep. sometimes if you allocate less time it will force you to focus and say no to other things do you have any book or other resources uh, that you want to recommend to the listeners i thought about this so right now i noticed that especially in the last 10 years or maybe even less like when with the advent of deep learning and machine learning it's harder to learn from books because things are moving too fast so in my personal experience as a software engineer sometime ago there were books that were general like uh, for example clean code was definitely influential book i really liked it pragmatic programmer is another classic oh, that was also good one. recently years ago there was a second edition that is more mm -hmm. updated i would recommend this one so these books they teach you skills that are transferable to other areas however they are mostly aimed at software engineers so not everyone from our audience will be super focused on this area right now i would say i learn more from youtube and tutorials and just finding things uh, as i need them a colleague of mine when i was new to amazon SageMaker, recommended to just go through documentation i'm not sure if it's always a good idea i downloaded pdf and for SageMaker, <laughs> it's three thousand pages so uh, here i would rather recommend just look up things as you need them and uh, I don't want to sound very boring, but ChatGPT is, again, amazing resource to poke and get general idea, especially when you get started, when you don't know when to write the first line of code. you have a favorite YouTube channel? So with programming, not really. My other hobby is photography. So there are some photography channels uh, I like, but uh, yeah, they're pretty far from what we're discussing here. Well, if you're interested, maybe draw, give us a link and then we'll put this in the show notes. And if anyone is interested in photography too, then... Sure. Yeah. Okay. That was fun. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, Thank thanks everyone me. too uh, for joining us today and listening to our conversation. That was uh, a lot of fun. Thanks, uh, Christoph, for sharing all your experience with us, for giving us uh, advice. And yeah, have a great weekend, I guess. Thank you for having me and have a great weekend, everyone. Bye. Goodbye.